I want you to think about the first time you came to church. Um, why did you come to church for the first time? Maybe for you, maybe it's like, well, my parents dragged me to church. Uh, that's true. Uh, maybe for some of you, it's my wife dragged me to church, and that's why you're here today. Yeah. Uh, some of you come into the season's performance hall and was like, church, I thought I came to a concert, right? Uh, me, when I first came to church, I will admit I came for a girl. Things have changed since then. I'm not coming for a girl anymore. Praise God for that. But that's just the reality of it. Lots of time, though, when you talk to people about, hey, why are you at church? Why are you coming to church? And there's, there's a lot of good answers. People say, well, you know, I, I, I want to experience God's love. I want to experience peace. I want to experience God. Um, I want to find his blessing in my life. Sometimes people say, I come to church because I want things to change in my life. I know that there are some things that aren't going the way they should, and I want to have change. I want to break the addictions I've got. I want to uh, get rid of the bad attitudes. I want to be a better person. I want to be a godly person. So I come to church naturally. And uh, just, you know, to be honest, uh, there's times when I talk to people and uh, you know, I, I hear their story and they say, you know, I've been trying to change my life. I've tried everything. You know, I, I've, I've, tried, um, I've tried being a better person. I've tried to get rid of my bad habits. I've tried self-help books. I've tried to go and volunteer in the community. I've tried to drink more coffee. I've tried to drink less coffee. I mean, I've tried every program there is there to try and be a better person. Kind of like going to TJ Maxx and trying on all the jeans to see which one fits the best. And they figure, well, I might as well try church. I might as well see if the church can do anything for this change that I want to experience in my life. And again, I just, I want to be full, fully honest with you this morning. A restoration church will not change your life. Now, I know some of you are saying, well, pastor, like we are, we are embedded in this church. Like, pastor, don't you want the church to grow? Like, pastor, you should be telling people, hey, come to church. Give your tithes and offerings. Go serve in the nursery. Yes, I want our church to grow. I want our church to grow. But more importantly than that, I want you to experience the change that you need in your life. I want you to experience God's blessing. And I want you to recognize that just trying church, trying church is not going to change you. Change doesn't come by you trying harder, doesn't come by you doing church and going through the motions of just doing church. In fact, in fact, the more that you try, the more that you try to bring change in your life, we might be able to change our, our behavior, but it doesn't bring that lasting change. It doesn't change uh, the deep down that, that changes our life forever. And why is that? Why do we try all these things to make our lives better, and yet we find it just to be a struggle? Now, there's a saying in Christianity, maybe you've heard it, that whatever the question is, the gospel is the answer. And that's true sometimes, but not true when you're trying to find out who won the 2014 Super Bowl. I'll tell you, it wasn't the Steelers. It wasn't the Cowboys. It wasn't the Packers. It was the Seahawks. The gospel isn't the answer to that question. But in terms of, uh, in questions of, of life and faith, man, the gospel is the answer every single time. In fact, if you were to say, well, well why, why do we come to church then? Because the church is here for that purpose, to point us back to the gospel. 
The church exists to continually point you and me and all of us back to the place that we will find change, and that is the gospel. And what I want us to understand today And whatever it is that brings you to church, whatever you are seeking to to change your life, to connect with God, to to be reborn, whatever it is, listen, change doesn't happen from trying harder. It comes from the Holy Spirit helping us to continually receive and believe the truth of the gospel. Really, the change that we want comes from us believing better. So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. If you have a Bible, I invite you to open your Bible to, to Romans chapter 8. If you're unfamiliar with your Bible, uh, if you open up into the middle of your Bible and turn uh, pages to the right, you'll find uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the Acts, and uh, then Romans. Uh, we've been in this series for the last couple of weeks. We're going to look at it for a few more weeks of this idea of a gospel-centered life. Uh, that as a church, as Christians, as people of faith, that we have a, a, a core belief that is supposed to be the foundation for everything we do. And it's the gospel. It's the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the anchor that everything that we as a church, that we as Christians, it is the anchor that everything that we do and everything that we believe is tethered to. The message of the gospel. We gave this definition of what the gospel is. I asked you to come up with your own definition. And here's what I wrote for my definition, my summary. The gospel says that Jesus, God in the flesh, fulfilling scripture, died in place of sinners because of his great love and rose from the grave, offering eternal and abundant life to those who put their faith in him. That's the gospel message. That's the message that Christianity is all about. And last week, we looked at the gospel as an accomplished event. We saw that, that through Jesus' life and death, listen, it's complete. There's nothing we can add to it. There's nothing we can take away to it. It is complete. And through his life and death, we are saved from the penalty of sin. And we are made right with God. Again, not because of anything that we do. From what Jesus has done. And it is complete. Next week, uh, we're going to look at the gospel in the future tense. We're going to look at the gospel as a coming reality. But today... We're going to look at the gospel as an ongoing experience in the the present tense, in the present realm. In fact, when we deal with this question of how how do we change? How do we fight sin? How do we become godly? How do we become a better person? Man, we're going to see that the gospel is the answer. The gospel as an ongoing experience. So... If you have your Bible open to Romans, I'm going to ask you just just stay there. Uh, I got a little detour to start us out this morning. Um, I want to start out, and and I want you to think about Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3. Because I want us to understand, before we talk about sin, that uh, behind every sin is a lie about God. Okay, do you understand this? Behind every sin is a lie about God. And this starts from the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. I mean, here you have uh, the creation story. God creates um, Adam. He, he puts Adam into the, the garden and gives him rain over the entire garden. Now, I don't know, like when we read about the, the Garden of Eden, it's supposed to be this perfect place. I don't know about you, but when I picture the Garden of Eden, I picture a tropical island. Because for me, like that would be the ideal place. Now, I don't think, you know, I don't think that's exactly where it is. But I want you to picture Adam in the garden, this beautiful place. And and God says it's not good for man to be alone. So he creates Eve. And then at the end of chapter 2, you see my favorite verse in the Bible. Verse 25 of Genesis chapter 2. That says, uh, Adam and Eve were in the garden, naked, and they were unashamed. That sounds like a great place to be. 
Uh, I'm just saying. And so with that, he creates all of this. And here's, here's the one instruction. Here's the one warning that God gives to Adam and Eve. Chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you, sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's all for you. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That's it. Look, Adam, I've created all this for you. I put you in this beautiful place. You have one rule. One thing you have to be mindful of. And most of us know how the story plays out. If you've been in church for a long time, you know that in chapter 3, Satan shows up in the form of a serpent. And here's what the serpent says. Genesis 3 says, He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? The woman said, well, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of that tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, and I want you to listen to this. Is this a truth or a lie? Says to the woman, you will not surely die. Is that a truth or is that a lie? That's a lie. Satan in John chapter 8 verse 44, Satan is described as uh, a liar, the father of all lies. So he tells this lie, you will not surely die. And he builds on that lie in verse 5. He says, for God knows that what you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So what's Eve to do? I mean, here, as God has been so good, given this beautiful place. And Satan comes and presents this case. Hey, listen, God's not really good. Hey, listen, God's keeping you from what's really good. And what does Eve do? She believes the lie. She believes the lie rather than the truth from God. And her desires begin to shift. Where pretty soon, instead of avoiding the tree, pretty soon she's hanging around the tree and she's checking it out. In fact, look at verse 6. It says, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise... She believed the lie, and she took of its fruits and ate, and she also gave to her husband who was with her, and he ate. See, that is the root of Adam and Eve's sin. This is, this is the root of every sin, is that you do not believe God. You don't believe the truth about God, but rather you believe a lie. You believe the lie maybe that God really isn't good, that God's keeping you from what's really good in life. And so what do we do? We disobey And the result of Adam and Eve's sin is we live in this fallen world. Now we have death and and, and cancer and divorce and abuse and all these things that go wrong in our world because they believe the lie rather than the truth. And I want you to understand and see how this works in your own life. I mean, why, why, why is it that we lie? Why do we lie? We lie because we're concerned with what other people will think about us if we tell the truth to say, oh, I screwed up. I did this or that. So... We hide the truth. Why do we get angry? We get angry because we don't believe that God's really in control. And we believe that we're actually losing control. Things aren't going the way that we want them to. So we get angry. Why do we steal? Because we don't trust that God's going to provide. So we have to provide for ourselves. Why do we get addicted to whatever our addiction is? Whether that be alcohol or or sex or entertainment or whatever it is. Because we don't believe that God is good enough. So we're searching for things that are good that will never satisfy us. 
behind every sin is a lie about God. And that is the foundation that we're going to build on for today. So Romans chapter 8, hopefully you are still there. Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, uh, the Apostle Paul gives us an assurance about our standing with God. He says, this is probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He said, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That if you are a Christian with God, God is not going to be angry with you. You have already had your sin dealt with. He said, place your faith and trust in the gospel and your identity and your salvation is secure because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of what you're doing right now. And that's good news. That is the gospel message. And in verse 5, the Apostle Paul is going to begin to contrast these two different ways to live. He's going to contrast uh, living according to the flesh or living according to the Holy Spirit. And this really, this really becomes the, the dilemma that the church and Christians have struggled with forever. Is our faith based on what we do or is our faith based on what God has done? So here's what Paul says to us in verse 5, Romans chapter 8. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Again, here in that verse, you see that there are two ways for us to live our life. There are two ways for us to live our faith. We can live first according to the flesh. We can live according to our own strength, our own power. We can try harder. We can do it our way. And there's a second way to live, and that's through the Spirit, where we have a dependence upon God, where we are, are trusting God to do the work. And again, we're, when we're dealing with this question on how do we change, these are the two ways that we can change. We can try in our own strength, because we try harder, and we're going we're, we're gonna to try and be a better person, we're going to learn more, we're going to come up with better habits. Or the second way is we depend on the Holy Spirit, and we trust God to do a work inside of us. And Paul continues in verse 6. He says, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. He says, If you are going to try and change your life according to your flesh, uh, by your own strength, by your own wisdom, he says that's death. Begin to say, well, what does he mean by that? I mean, according to the spirit is life, but according to the flesh is death. How does that work out? And if you were here last week, we talked about if we live our life as if we have to prove ourselves, if we are living our life as if, hey, I have to prove myself to God to prove I'm worthy, if we live our life as if I have to prove myself to all the other people around me and to the people in the church, and if we live our life having to prove ourselves to ourselves, listen, that's exhausting. And if we are constantly trying to prove ourselves, do you understand the tremendous pressure that is on us to achieve? That there's this weight of pressure that's on us all the time because what we do is really important because that determines whether or not we're going to be accepted by God and accepted by other people. And Paul says, listen, I don't know if that's death, but I know that's definitely not life. And on the flip side, Paul says, listen, if you don't have to prove yourself to God, if you don't have to prove yourself to other people, if your acceptance and your identity is based on Jesus' good performance, man, that's when the pressure's off. That's when there's freedom. That's when no longer you're living the rat race. Now you can just trust and rest in what God has done for you in Jesus. And Paul says, listen, that's where life and peace is found. That's where freedom is found. 
When we learn, hey, it's not about our flesh and what we do, it's about what Christ has done. So Paul introduces these two ways. There's two ways for us to change, either according to the flesh or according to the spirit. And here's here's what the difference between those two things are. There's a major difference. If you are trying to change your life according to the flesh, if you're trying to be a better person, you're trying to get better habits, you're trying to, to learn how to avoid certain things, that's not bad. You might be able to change your behavior. But the problem is, changing your life according to your flesh does not drill down deep enough. Trying to change your life yourself does not deal with the underlying issue, which is your heart. No matter how hard you try, in your own strength, none of us can do that. None of us can change our heart. In fact, uh, Jeremiah 17, 9 says, Our hearts are desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's the problem. The, the, the problem isn't what we do. The problem is our heart. And this is, what the, this is the difference between trying to change ourselves and allowing the Holy Spirit to do the work in us. It's because the Holy Spirit will actually change our heart. It doesn't just change our behavior, it changes our heart. In Ezekiel chapter 32, there's this prophecy about the Holy Spirit. And God says, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. This is what he just said. Listen, if you want to change your life, you have to allow the Spirit into your life to do a work to actually not just change your behavior, but to change your heart. And this is why so many of us, when we're trying to change, we're trying to be a better person. This is why we feel like we always fall back. This is why we get a little bit of growth and then we just... One step forward and two steps backwards. Because when we we change and we try and be a better person, we try and overcome. Listen, when we just try harder, man, we're just changing the behavior. We're not dealing with the heart. That's why we have to allow the Holy Spirit to work in us. So what does that look like in your life? As you begin thinking about the kind of person you want to be, how you want to change, maybe how you've tried in the past. You've got anger in your life. You've got jealousy. You've got greed. You've got lust, alcohol, comparison. When you think about what you've tried to deal with in your life, how have you seen that in your life when you've tried on your own strength to try and change and it seems like you fall back time and time again? I remember a couple years ago, uh, I was talking to a, a friend of mine who was an older, wiser pastor and we were talking about the issue of, of pornography in the church. And I know pornography isn't a fun conversation for people to talk about. The reality of it, statistically, if there are 10 guys in the room, there are nine guys who struggle on a varying degree with pornography and, and, and lust. So it's a relevant topic. And we were talking about, well, how do you help the church and how do you help Christian men deal with this issue of, of lust and pornography? And, and he said, well, the typical response is we got to change the behavior. Your typical response is if somebody comes and says, hey, hey, I have a lust problem. You say, well, you need to get accountability software on your phone. You need to get rid of the computer uh, you need to uh, read this book. There's a good book that talks about some, some tips. Uh, you need to get an accountability partner because that always works because you're always honest with your accountability partner, right? And so you do these things and you try and change your behavior. But the thing is, it doesn't drill down deep enough because if your heart is still sick, you're still going to search it. You're still going to find it in a different form. So you may not be looking at things on your phone, but when you see the girl running down the road, you're going to take a second look because you haven't dealt with the underlying issue. You've changed your behavior, but you haven't changed your heart. 
And too often, when we're trying to change, we're trying to be a better person, whatever happens to be, we too often deal with just the behavior. We fail to address the root. We fail to get the heart of the matter. The problem isn't what we do. The problem is the heart that tells us to do it. And this is why, this is why Paul says, listen, don't live according to the flesh. Live according to the spirit. Allow God to do some work in your life. And let God change your heart. Question becomes, well, how does, how does it happen? How does, how, does, how does the Holy Spirit begin to change my heart? And it comes to the very nature of us understanding with the Holy Spirit, why it exists. When you look at the nature of the Holy Spirit, okay? John 14, 7 says, he is the spirit of truth. John 16, 13 says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Do you recognize what the Holy Spirit is there for? The Holy Spirit is there to, to guide us to the truth. And, and too often what happens is we miss out on the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Because when we hear about the Holy Spirit, we hear about all the sensational. We hear about all these crazy, awesome, amazing miracles the Holy Spirit does. In fact, I had a friend uh, a couple months ago, and he came and said, hey, can I talk to you? He, he said, you know, Kevin, I think you're uh, at church. You don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit. You don't talk enough about the Holy Spirit, you know, healing the sick and raising the dead and doing all these spectacular things. I said, okay. I said, let me just tell you, I believe that God does those things. I believe that God heals the sick and raises the dead and does the spectacular. But when we focus on the spectacular, the big, the grand, we miss out on the miraculous things that God, that the Holy Spirit does every day. We miss out on the purpose of the Holy Spirit. Again, what did Jesus just tell us in John 16? He guides us to all truth. And equally miraculous is God raising some from the dead. Equally miraculous is every time that the Holy Spirit leads people to the truth. Where, where he takes somebody uh, who's, who, who, who's um, uh, mean and makes them kind. When the Holy Spirit takes someone who is stingy and makes them generous. When he takes somebody who is selfish and makes them sacrificial. When he takes someone who is harsh and makes them gentle. When he takes someone who is stubborn and makes them flexible. When he takes someone who is proud and makes them humble. That is the miracle of the Holy Spirit. And when we're seeking the miraculous and the big and the grand, we miss the fact that the Holy Spirit does these things all the time. Right here in our church. And I want you to catch this. Then when we're dealing with this issue of, of how do I change my life? How do I overcome? How do I be a more godly? How do I be a better person? Listen, it doesn't come by believing. It doesn't come by trying harder. It comes by believing better. It comes from believing better. It comes from the Holy Spirit uh, continually um, helping us to receive and believe the truths of the gospel. It comes as the Holy Spirit leads us to truth. And the Holy Spirit helps us to turn to Christ and, and trust the truth that he just revealed to us. This is a process called repentance and faith. Repentance is where we, we turn from the lies about God and we turn from the sin that results from those lies. And faith is when we uh, uh, turn to the truth about God and the godly behavior that comes from believing that truth. This is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in our lives. To help us turn from the lies and turn to the truth. To help us from believing the lies to believing the truth. 
And when we begin to understand this process, listen, that's where that change comes from. That's where we become more godly. That's where we overcome the, the struggles and the hangups in our life. Not from trying harder. There's, there is action involved in it. There is a process. You've got to do your part. But the root of it comes from us believing better. Believing the truths that the Holy Spirit reveals to us. So let me, let me give you a couple examples, just real practical here, of what this looks like in your life. There are four truths I want to point out uh, that are displayed from the gospel. That if we believe these truths when we are tempted, man, I think God will give us victory over sin in our life. The four, four, four words, they're all going to start with G, because that's what pastors are supposed to do. They're supposed to have things and, and notes that all have the same letters. So God is gracious, God is good, God is great, and God is glorious. God is gracious, the first one. Uh, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. There's a number of verses we could turn to. I chose Isaiah 30. It says, therefore, the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore he exalts himself to show mercy to you. You see the fact that God is gracious in the gospel? You see that because you and I are not saved because of what we do. We're not made right with God because of our works, because of what we do or don't do. It's all because of the grace of God. It's all because of what Jesus has done in our place. God is gracious. But you know what happens when we don't believe that God is gracious? You know what happens when we don't believe that truth? We talked about some of these things last week. That we feel like, if I don't believe God is gracious, I feel like I have to prove myself to other people. I have to prove myself to God. And so if I'm having to prove myself, I'm going to be tempted to judge others harshly. Because I've got to make myself look better. So I'm going to be a lot harder on you because I want to make myself feel like I'm better than that person. So I'm more acceptable to God. If I do not believe that God is gracious, again, I'm going to be tempted to lie. I'm going to be tempted to cover up my sin and to cover up my junk because I don't want people to know, hey, he's really not as good as he thinks he is or he says he is. I'm going to be tempted to shift the blame where when I make a mistake, I want to point and say, well, it's really their fault. It's their fault. They're the ones that made me do what I did. So we, we blame shift. If I don't believe that God is gracious, isn't this when we become phonies? When we come to church and we fake it? We put a smile on our face and we try and look the part? When in reality, things are just falling apart. So we, we fake it because, again, if I have to prove myself to others, I have to prove myself to God. I've got to make the look. I've got to look a certain way. But you understand... If we believe that God is gracious, if you believe that truth, that God is gracious, that, that your identity and your salvation is not based on what you do, that your acceptance isn't based on what you do, man, then you don't have to prove yourself to other people. You don't have to prove yourself to the other people in church. That you can rest in grace based on the fact that your acceptance is solely found because of what Jesus has done for you. You can be real with where you are because you're not judged by that. You've been given grace and you are forgiven. Again, this is where you, you, you understand you've got to believe the truth. God is gracious. Second one, God is good. You've got to believe the truth that God is good. This is shown in the gospel in that God saw our good even though it cost him his son, Jesus. It cost him his life. Again, a number of verses you could turn to. I chose Romans 5.8. It says, But God shows his sinners 
or God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That is the truth that God is good. While we were still sinning, he still chose to love us. He still chose to send Jesus to the cross for us. But do you understand, if we don't believe that God is good, if we don't believe that God is good, then what we're going to do is we're going to start searching for things that are good, that are never going to satisfy us. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, I would look and I would say most of our addictions start from the very idea that we are searching for things that are good that are never going to satisfy. Whether that be alcohol, whether that be entertainment, relationships, food, sex, money, whatever it is. Our addictions come because we look at something that's good and we're trying to find it to satisfy us and to fulfill us, and it never does. I mean, that's why if you have this addiction to food and you're going to pursue food and it's going to be the thing that's going to make you happy, listen, it satisfies for a night until you wake up the next morning with indigestion. And then guess what you want to do that next night? You want to eat again. And you want to overcome. You want to get better. Because again, you've, you've taken something that's good and you're trying to find uh, ultimate value in it. It's not going to satisfy. It will never. It wasn't created to satisfy. And so instead of believing the truth that God is good, we look for the good things of this world and we try to make them ultimate. And they leave us always searching for more. I mean, isn't that where our addictions come from? Because we take something that's good and we're trying to make it ultimate. And I want you to understand on the flip side, if you believe that God is good, if you believe that God is good, if your satisfaction comes from him, doesn't that free us to enjoy God's gifts without obsessively pursuing them? Doesn't, if we believe that God is good, that we aren't looking for those things to, to fulfill us, to satisfy us, because we already have something that has satisfied us in God. Again, it's just simple truth. God is gracious. God is good. Number three, God is great. Now, I wanted to say God is in control, but that doesn't start with G. So you have God is great, all right? Again, lots of verses we could turn to. I chose Isaiah 41. Uh, that says, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you by my righteous hand. Again, God's greatness is shown for us in the gospel. In that Jesus died. He rose from the grave. He defeated sin, death, hell, everything that they could throw at him. And he did that. If God could do that, certainly God can handle what you got going on today, right? I mean, if God could take Jesus and raise him from the dead, certainly God can deal with a broken relationship. Certainly God could deal with whatever's going on in your life today. And what happens is we don't believe, if we don't believe that God is great, if we don't believe that God is in control, is when things start going haywire like they often do, when things seem like they're out of control in our life, we become filled with anxiety and worry. And stress. Let's just be honest. When we're filled with those things, anxiety and worry and stress, man, isn't it difficult for us to love other people? Because we're consumed with our own struggles. We're consumed with what's in front of us. And when we have that anxiety and that stress, what do we try and do? We try and control the situation. Man, I'm going to control the situation. I'm going to dictate what happens on the outcome. That's where our anger comes from. We begin to struggle with anger. Why? Because things aren't going my way. Things aren't going according to my plan. 
And so because I'm out of control, because I don't believe God is in control, I'm going to get angry. So things begin to shape the way I want them to go. This is where we can be overbearing, controlling, manipulative. Because we fail to believe that God is great. We fail to believe that God is in control. We fail to believe that God has this issue in my life today. On the flip side, if we truly believe that truth, that God is great, that God is in control, that God is working things out for my good and his glory, isn't that when we can be at peace in whatever situation we're in? Whether things are going good or whether things are going great, because we trust and believe, listen, God's still in control. Just because I'm going through this right now doesn't mean that God is not in control. I think about that song we sang this morning. God, I've seen you move mountains. And just because it seems like the mountain is growing up right now, God, I believe I'll see you do it again. Because you're still in control. You are still God. It's a gospel truth. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is great. Oh, number four, God is glorious. Uh, Number one, God is gracious. Number two, God is good. Number three, God is great. Number four, God is glorious. Uh, Jeremiah 10, 7 says, Who would not fear you, O king of nations? For this is your due. For among all the wise ones of the nations and all the kingdoms, there is none like you. Our God is glorious, is he not? You see God's glory shown in his sacrifice on the cross. That he went to the cross and he gave his life for you. He died in your place. Let me ask you this. Has anybody else ever died in your place? Uh, Nobody's done that for me. I'm pretty sure of. Listen, if we don't believe that God is glorious, if we don't believe that he is Lord, if we don't believe he's number one, he's the only one that's worthy of my honor and my praise, if you don't believe that, you begin to worship other people. You begin to put other people on a pedestal and think, man, this person is so amazing. I want to be like them. They've got, all, they've got it all figured out. You begin to become, be consumed with what other people think. You begin to seek their approval in your life. And you build your life because you think, man, that's who I need approval from and not God. So you allow those people to dictate how you live. You give it to peer pressure. You live according to the standards of our culture and live just like everybody else because they're the ones that are glorious. Again, do you see how this plays out in your life? Where if you don't believe that God is glorious, man, it leads to so many different things. I don't know what that looks like for you. But if I believe that God is glorious, if I believe that gospel truth, that what he's did is amazing and makes him Lord of my life, and he's the one, man, then I will gladly listen to him. Then I'll gladly walk in his ways because he is the only one that's truly worthy of my adoration, of my worship, of my life. You see how these things play out? These four simple truths. What do they look like in your life? Which of these truths is the one that you need to remember this week? Which of these truths is going to be the key for you this week? As you start thinking about the the change you want in your life, start thinking about the growth that you want to see in your faith. Which of these truths is the one that you need to take home this week? That's right, God. That's right, you are gracious. That's right, God, you are good. That's right, God, you are great. You are in control. Oh, that's right, God, you are 
glorious. You're the one that is worthy of my adoration. Listen, if you want to see that growth, you don't need a self-help book. You don't need a self-help religion. You don't need to try harder. What you need is a death and the resurrection of Jesus. The life-transforming truths of the gospel. You don't just need that once that begins your Christian life. You need that gospel every moment of every day. Because in them, in those gospel truths, that's where you find your salvation. It's where you find your confidence, your security, your purpose in life. That's where you find victory over sin. That's where you find growth. That's where you find change. Pastor, how do I do that? How do I, how do I, how do I experience this? Man, it's been the same message for a couple of weeks in a row. John chapter 1, verse 12 says, But all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. So I'm not here to tell you you need to jump through hoops. I'm here to tell you what Jesus told us to do. To receive him, to believe in him, to put our faith and trust in him. And as we do that, we open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. We open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit to, to lead us away from those lies, to lead us to the truth. And that's where the change is going to come from. That's what I want for you today. I want us not just to try harder, not to come to church and have this hard life because we're living according to the flesh and we're trying so hard. I want you to be free. I want you to experience what only God can do for you. Let's change your heart. Let's pray.